Joshua chapters 13 and 14, starting from verse 1. When Joshua, Joshua had grown old, the Lord said to him, You are now very old, and there are still very large areas of land to be taken over. This is the land that remains. All the regions of the Philistines and Geshurites, from the river Shihor on the east of Egypt to the territory of Ekron on the north, All of it counted as Canaanite, though held by five Philistine rulers in Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. The territory of the Avites on the south, all the land of the Canaanites, from Ara of the Sidonians as far as Aphek and the border of the Amorites. The area of Byblos and all Lebanon to the east, from Balgad below Mount Hermon to the Bohemath. As for all the inhabitants of the mountain regions from Lebanon to Misrafoth Maim. That is, all the Sidonians. I myself will drive them out before the Israelites. Be sure to allocate this land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have instructed you, and divide it as an inheritance among the nine tribes and half of the tribe of Manasseh. The other half of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites, had received the inheritance that Moses had given to them east of the Jordan, as he, the servant of the Lord, had assigned it to them. It extended from Aroa on the rim rim of the Arnon Gorge, and from the town in the middle of the gorge, and included the whole plateau of Medeba as far as Dibon, and all the towns of the Sihon king of the Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon, out to the border of the Ammonites. It also included Gilead, the territory of the people of Geshur and Makar, all of Mount Hermon and all Bashan, as far as Salika, that is, the whole kingdom of Og in Bashan, who had reigned in Ashtaroth and Edrei. He was the last of the Rephaites. Moses had defeated them and taken over their land, but the Israelites did not drive out the people of Geshur and Makar, so they continue to live among the Israelites to this day. But to the tribe of Levi he gave no inheritance, since the food offerings presented to the Lord, the God of Israel, are their inheritance, as he promised them. We're going to jump to chapter 14 now, uh, reading verse 1, and then uh, verses 6 to 15. Now these are the areas the Israelites received as an inheritance in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar, the priest, Joshua, son of Nun, and the heads of the tribal clans of Israel allotted to them. Now the people of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Trephune the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me. I was forty years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land. And I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my fellow Israelites, who went up with me and made the hearts of the people sink, I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses, while Israel moved about in the wilderness. So here I am today, 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there, that their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, 
I will drive them out just as he said. Then Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron as his inheritance. So Hebron has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, ever since, because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. Hebron used to be called um, Kiriath Arba after Arba, who was the greatest man among the Anakites. Then the land had rest from war. This is God's word. Uh, if we've not met, my name's Phil, I'm one of the ministers here, and we're going to tuck into Joshua 13 to 14. We won't look at the whole of it, we're just going to dip in, because most of you have got to be at work by 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that all scripture is for our teaching, our instruction, our help, that we might trust the Lord Jesus and live more fully for him. So we pray that you would show us Uh, what we are to learn from this, that you would speak clearly to us tonight, that we might be more confident about living for Christ in this world, in this lifetime, for your glory's sake. Amen. Uh, Sir Ranulph Fiennes is a very annoyed man at the moment. I love Sir Ranulph Fiennes, the British explorer. He is a properly uh, nuts individual, and he's, uh, he is just that strange breed of hard. Went to a, a lecture that he was doing a couple of years ago at the Royal Geographical Society. I'm quite cultured, um, every now and then. And uh, uh, my wife took me. And anyway, um, he, was, uh, he was talking about an expedition. They'd been up in, in the Arctic, and uh, things had gone wrong. They were trapped in pack ice, and they were going to have to see out the winter. They had probably not enough supplies, but that doesn't bother a man like him. So he and, uh, he and the guy who's with are basically just slowly losing weight and working out whether they can survive long enough. And then he says that the guy who he's with, uh, the fellow explorer, uh, got very seriously ill, wasn't sure he was going to make it, and then uh, going out of the tent one day fell and uh, broke his jaw and split a tooth in half while sitting you know, in sub-zero temperatures with no medical help. And Ranulph Fiennes then said, at which point he began to whinge, and I hate whinging, <laughs> which gives you an insight. Yeah, okay, he's a tough guy. Uh, but he's very, very annoyed because um, he's just been refused permission to cross the Antarctic continent during winter on foot. He's 72 years old. At the time when most people's idea of exercise is a round of golf, and most people's idea of adventure is going on a cruise ship around the Caribbean, he wants to cross the Antarctic in winter on foot. And then he's still got four highest mountains in four continents he hasn't yet finished. But then this is the guy who uh, climbed Everest uh, just after a double bypass surgery and then ran seven continents in seven days within, what was it, two months of uh, double bypass surgery in his heart. I think he'd have got on very well with Caleb. (laughs) I kind of think, yeah, those two, uh, they would have had fun going out for a drink together. All very interesting. Uh, So Caleb's quite a tough guy. Um, What are we supposed to make of it? It's just an odd, interesting story. A challenge, no doubt, to our youth-obsessed culture. But what are we to make of this passage? Why is it here in the Bible? What's it to teach us? What it's about, actually, is a very, very important question. And it's a question that you and I need an answer for long before we get anywhere near retirement. And the question is this. What is your mission in life? What is your life about? 
What are you living for? And is what you are living for something that when you stand on the threshold of eternity, looking back at the life you've lived and the character you've formed and looking forward to the unending future, is it a mission, a goal, a focus that is going to look wise and worthwhile on the threshold of eternity? That's the question that ultimately is addressed in this passage. And what we find here is that if your life is built on God's promises and focused on entering God's eternal rest, then you'll be set free to live a life of adventure and excitement and a life in line with God's great eternal mission to save people. You'll be set free to live a life of unimaginable significance and worth. A life like Caleb. Okay, two points for you. Um, sorry, they're not on the, on the handout. Uh, two points. The first is the land is God's gift of rest, and uh, we'll think about chapter 13. And then secondly, we accept God's gift by fighting the fight. Firstly, the, the land is God's gift of rest. Now, it seems to me when I was preparing this that few passages in the Bible can seem so yawning-ducingly irrelevant to a bunch of people who are largely drawn from generation rent as chapter 13 of Joshua. It's a whole chapter about a bunch of people we've never met who died a long time ago being given chunks of agricultural land. Doesn't that just get your juices flowing? I don't think there are very many of us who have uh, Joshua 13, 19, 20 as memory verses for life. Kiriathim, Sibam, Zereth Shahar in the hill of the valley, Beth Peor, the slopes of Pisgah and Beth Jeshimoth, all the towns on the plateau and the entire realm of Sion, king of the Amorites who ruled at Heshbon. It doesn't really get you excited. Okay, so what's going on? Uh, We're in the third um, section of Joshua as we just saw. Uh, The book breaks down into four sections really and the promised land is the key Verse, uh, chapters 1 to 4 entering the promised land that's chapters 1 to 4 it's all about entering the promised land and then the middle uh, chapters 5 to 12 are about taking the promised land the invasion the battles at Jericho and Ai and then with the northern kings and then chapters 13 to 21 are about uh, sharing out the promised land before at the end, in chapters 22 to 24, you get the last couple of chapters about enjoying or living in the promised land. It's all about the promised land, entering, taking, sharing out and enjoying the land. But what are we supposed to do with this emphasis on land? Now the physical land, Israel, Palestinian territories, um, all that area, they have no significance for followers of God today. Historical interest, but no spiritual significance for us. The land of Canaan was always just a sign, a symbol, a teaching aid to point God's people to a greater reality. Paul tells the church in Philippians, in Philippians chapter 3, our citizenship is not in Canaan, but in heaven. In heaven. If you follow Jesus, there is no particular area of land on this earth that has your inheritance in it eternally that has particular significance in that sense for you. And unless we get this clear, we just won't understand the lessons that God has for you and me in the book of Joshua. 
So what I want to do just briefly is to, um, rather than go through the detail of chapter 13, just to explain the theology that lies behind it. All this land being divided out, what are we to make of it? So two points for you, two points. Land is ultimately about rest. Land is ultimately about rest. And secondly, ultimate rest is in the new creation. Land is ultimately about rest and ultimate rest is in the new creation. Firstly, land is ultimately about rest. You see, ever since our ancestors were booted out of Canaan, uh, out of the the Garden of Eden, mankind has been marked by warfare and wandering. Warfare with God and one another, a relentless strife and struggle has been human history. And wandering, that, uh, that sense of not being at home, that longing for a place that once was ours, that longing for somewhere where we feel like we belong, where we feel like everything is right, God's people in the Old Testament are called wanderers, or to use the old language, sojourners in the earth, longing for a place that is theirs, a place that is home, a place where they can be truly at peace and at rest. And God promised to provide it for them. He uh, he promised this guy, Abraham, that he would give his descendants a land where they could dwell and be secure and enjoy God's blessings. And that promise crystallized around the land of Canaan. Uh, and as God repeats, repeats the promise in Deuteronomy 12 to the, now the nation of Israel, Abraham's descendants, before they go into the land of Canaan, God says this in Deuteronomy 12.10, But you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and he will give you rest from all your enemies, so you will live in safety. Rest from wandering and rest from war. That's what the promised land is about. And at the end of Joshua, we read again and again of rest. In the final couple of chapters, uh, in 21 verse 24, in 22 verse 4, and then in 23 verse 1, we're told, now that they're in the land, God gave them rest. Not inactivity. They're going to build houses. They're going to plant vineyards. Uh, Not inactivity of doing nothing but an end to the relentless warfare and wandering that has marked their lives. The promised land is ultimately about God's people being at rest to enjoy life as it should be. But that's not the end of the story. And as the Old Testament progresses, the second thing we learn is that ultimate rest is in the new creation. So uh, 400 or so years later, God warns the Israelites in um, Psalm 95 that if they harden their hearts and ignore his commands, then... Like the wilderness generation, he says in Psalm 95, 11, they will never enter my rest, which is odd because they're in the land. So why would God be telling them when they're already in the land that they need to enter his rest if the rest is in the land? What he's teaching them is that there is more to God's rest than just being physically in the dirt of Canaan. That's why Jesus, speaking to Jews living in Israel, in Matthew 11, says to them, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. Because what he offers is more than just being in the land. The writer to the book of Hebrews takes this up in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 1 and says to uh, not to to Jews longing for for the land of Cain and Israel, but to, to Christians, to God's people in the New Testament era. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands... Let us be careful that none of you fall short. Ultimate rest is not about the land of Canaan. Ultimate rest comes through Jesus Christ and is found in the new creation. 
ultimate rest comes through Jesus Christ and is found in the new creation. And it is then, when Jesus remakes the world, that you and I will know an end, a real end, to the strife with God, the strife with one another, and the wandering, the homelessness that's been our lot ever since Adam and Eve sinned. Okay, in case you drifted off, it happens sometimes, uh, here's the take home. It's just, it's warm. I'm not boring, it's warm. Uh, as we read about God's people being given their inheritance in chapters 13 to 19, you and I are getting the foretaste of a day when it will be your names being read out. And our greater Joshua, the true Joshua, the, one, the God who saves, Jesus, that's what Joshua's name means. Jesus is the Greek for Joshua, which means God saves. The day will come when he will have finished making the new creation. And he will call all of those who follow the Lord Jesus together. And he will give us our inheritance, our land. And we will enter the new creation to enjoy lives of amazing adventure and excitement. Enjoying his perfect rest. No longer at war. No longer wandering lost. But exploring, enjoying and resting a remade world given by God. That's what's going on. Uh, there's not really time to, to run through chapter uh, 13. You see a number of the themes come out. Um, uh, you see it's God who provides the um, the strength for it. So it's all right that Joshua is old. Um, we're told that um, God says in chapter in verse 6 that he will drive out um, the enemies. So don't worry that the human leader is old. We're told that God is the ultimate inheritance of his people. That's why the Levites don't need an inheritance in the land. God is their inheritance. And we're told um, again and again, you'll have um, picked up as the, as the reading went through, about Sion and Og, these two kings of the Amorites who were destroyed. They're mighty kings who were destroyed on the way to the promised land. The point being, it's God's way of saying to the next generation... You can trust God's promise that he will bring you safely uh, through everything that is to come in the future because of what he's done in the past. Blind faith is, I believe although I've got no reason to. Biblical faith is, I believe because of what God has done in the past and promised in the future. Very, very different. He has a track record. Okay, uh, that's the theology behind chapter 13. The promised land is all about the rest you and I will enjoy in the new creation. Let's turn to chapter 14 where we learn that we accept this gift of rest by fighting the fight. We accept God's gift by fighting the fight. Now the Old Testament is not primarily a whole uh, heap of examples of perfect people to emulate. Uh, God's people in the Old Testament are adulterers, murderers, swindlers, doubters and deviants. And that's the best of them. It really isn't. Uh, Here's a whole heap of great people. God is the hero. The Old Testament is how God will bring about his plan to save the world by bringing his promised saviour king, the Christ, to save his people by dying for them. And how God will somehow work his purposes out through and in and usually in spite of his people. God is the hero. But sometimes you get examples of people who get it right and Caleb gets it right. But even as he gets it right, what he gets right is that he trusts in God. And so Caleb isn't ultimately a be like Caleb. It's trust God. Trust God. That's the message Caleb gives us. And we learn this as Caleb treats us to a history lesson and tells us about his rather surprising retirement plan. Uh, So let's dive in at uh, chapter 14 and verse 6. Now the people of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me. 
I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land. And I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my fellow Israelites who went up with me made the hearts of the people sink. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he's kept me alive for 45 years since that time he said this to Moses while Israel moved about in the wilderness. So here I am today, 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. It is quite a comic scene when you imagine what must have been going on. Uh, the, the brutal period of warfare is over now. And the Israelites have gathered at Gilgal for Joshua to parcel out the land that is now theirs. And Caleb comes at the head of the tribe of Judah to Joshua. And only he and Joshua now remain of the generation who left Egypt and passed through the Red Sea. He has lived 85 years of slavery, of wilderness wandering and of warfare. If anyone has a right to say, give me the choicest part of the land. I've not got long to live, so give me the choicest part. Give me a part where uh, the grapes are ready to be harvested. Give me a part where there are houses ready to move into. If anybody's got a right to that, it's Caleb. Most of us would say, look, I'm ready to retire. I'm 85. Uh, I want to know where there's a golf course and a vineyard. And that's me done. But Caleb turns away from the valleys and points uphill to the hill country where the terrifying Anakites, a tribe who are basically known as warriors, they're the Spartans, they're the SAS of the day. They are serious, hardcore, brutal warriors. And they've got fortified towns. And he says, that's what I want. (laughs) You can imagine the coughs of surprise. The territory of the Anakites, Caleb, are you nuts? You and whose army? You're 85. And leaning on his walking stick, he draws his sword with his wrinkly arm and waves it in the air and says, verse 11, I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. He wants to spend his retirement glorifying God by fighting the most terrifying warriors in the whole land. And what on earth gives an 85-year-old the desire to do that? It's not dementia here. He's, he's, he knows what he's doing. He's not, he's not getting a little bit doolally. He really knows what he's about. The answer to that question takes us to the incident that he describes in verses 6 to 9. It's an incident that took place, as he says, 45 years earlier in Numbers chapters 13 to 14. The children of Israel have left Egypt two years ago. They've been to Sinai, the mountain. They've received God's law written on the stone tablets. They've, uh, they've made the tabernacle. God now dwells amongst them. And they head towards the promised land. And as they camp on the edge of the promised land, Moses gathers 12 spies, including Joshua and Caleb, and sends them in to spy out the promised land. And the area that they spy out happens to be this area, 
the area of the Anakites. And when they come back, Joshua and Caleb come back with a very different story from the other ten. Joshua and Caleb come back with a, uh, a bunch of grapes so heavy they have to put it on a pole and carry it between them. And they say, this is a, a land flowing with milk and honey. Let's go for it. God is good to us. The other ten say, this is terrible. There are huge, terrifying warriors. There are, there are fortified cities and all we've got is swords and spears. We're going to get annihilated. It's a disaster. We can't go anywhere near there. And the people decide to trust the other ten rather than Joshua and Caleb. And so God condemns the Israelites and says, okay, you won't trust me. Then this whole generation will die. And they wander in the desert until all of them have died, except Joshua and Caleb. And the same things that gave Caleb confidence as he looked at the promised land and as he looked at the fortified cities 45 years before, give him confidence on this day at Gilgal. The same things, the same two things. And that is that he has God's promise and he has God's presence. He has God's promise and he has God's presence. Uh, God's promise. Look with me at verse 12. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. As a 40-year-old, Caleb saw Canaan differently from the other 10 spies because it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant how big the tribes are. It's irrelevant how high their city walls are. God has promised this land to us and God keeps his promises. And the same is true as an 85-year-old as he looks up at the hill country. God has promised it to us. It's irrelevant how strong they are. Why would you even consider that? The only difference now, actually, is that he's got 45 years of seeing God cash out on his promises every time. He's seen the raging river Jordan just stop so that they can walk across. He's seen the mighty walls of Jericho just crumble and fall at a trumpet blast. He fought on the day when God stopped the sun in the sky. She says, look, God has a track record of keeping his promises. Of course I want to go and do something exciting. God has promised it to us. And so the battles with the Anakites don't hold any fear for him. He also has God's presence Look again at verse 12. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then the Anakites were there. Their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Why is it that this wrinkly warrior is not afraid of savage young fighters? And he is not a young man anymore. I don't think we're meant to take it seriously when he says, I'm still as strong now as I ever was. I think, I think we're, meant to, we're meant to see everybody laughing as he says it. There is no way his reflexes at 85 are the same as what they were at 40 or at 20. There is no way he's as strong. But he's confident of victory because as a 40-year-old, his confidence wasn't that he was really strong. Caleb doesn't get back from spying out the promised land as a 40-year-old and say, you know what, I had a look at them, I can have them all. Seriously, let me at them. I am so much bigger and stronger than them. Let's go, let's do this, let's do this. Now as a 40-year-old, he said, do not be afraid of them, Numbers 14.9, the Lord is with us. His confidence was in his God, not himself. 
in his mighty God, not his own mighty arms. And God is as strong today when Caleb's 85 as God was when Caleb was 40. So even the wrinkly warrior can say, let me at him. Let me at him. I mean, who cares how big they are? I've got God on my side. Do you think they're as big as God? Don't be stupid. Let's go. It's, you know, you, you, you think about, um, imagine a 17-year-old girl and dad says, uh, I'm going to give you a car for your birthday. A car? But dad, I can't afford a car. How can I ever get a car? Cars are expensive. There's no way I can afford a car. You give me five pounds a week pocket money. He's a stingy dad. And, and wh- wh- how am I supposed to get a car? But if she remembers every birthday, my dad has told me what he's going to get me, and every birthday for 17 years, he's given me what he's told me. Well, she might look at it differently. And if she knows that her, her dad is stinking rich, okay, I know he earns £400,000 a year. Maybe he can get me a car. When she stops thinking about what she can do and starts thinking about what her dad has promised and how faithful he is and what her dad can buy, and he's very rich, everything looks different. And Caleb is not looking at himself and thinking, oh, can I fight these guys? Am I strong enough? Am I young enough? Uh, Have I got enough followers with me? Caleb is looking at his God and saying, he is big enough. He is strong enough. Let's go. God's presence and God's promise are our confidence. If you're a Christian here, the measurement is never, uh, what can I do? It is always, what can God? And everything changes with that. Okay, so what should we do in response to this? First, we should fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. Salvation is a gift. God gives it to us. Jesus Christ achieved it for us by dying in our place on the cross so our sins would be forgiven, by conquering the death that we deserve. The Holy Spirit breathes new life into us. It is all a gift of God. And we receive it by faith. That is, by trusting God, by faith. Taking God's promises at face value. That's what faith is. I trust in God's promises and so I act on them. Faith is fighting in the New Testament. Not to kill people. It's very clear that that's not what we're to do. But as Paul says to Timothy, it's fighting the good fight of faith. Trusting God's promises and so living in the light of that. Living a courageous, self-sacrificial life. The good fight is not a physical war as it was here. It cannot be that for a Christian. Caleb lives in a unique period in the history of the people of God. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that we are to love our enemies. Jesus prays as he's being killed on the cross, forgive them, Father. No, we are to love. Our battle is very different. We fight like Caleb for the glory of God, but we fight in a different way. We fight against the sinful desires within us. The desires that mean even as Christians, those of us who follow God, disobey and dishonor him regularly. And you know what? It ought to feel like a battle. (laughs) If you're a Christian, you think, I must be such a bad Christian. It just feels like I'm I'm constantly being torn between wanting to serve God and, and, and wanting to do other stuff. Good. There should be no peace with sinful desires. Peace with God now because we're forgiven, but no peace with sinful desires. And if you've been at truce with sinful desires in your life, then God, the Holy Spirit, says through Caleb's example tonight, time to take up your weapons again. Get fighting. Fight like Caleb and fight until the day you die. 
Never call a truce on sin. Fight valiantly. Fight courageously. Fight the fight of faith against your sinful desires. Secondly, we fight uh, to spread the gospel. So 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 4 to 5, as Paul talks about telling other people about Jesus, taking the gospel out to others, he uses this language of war. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. In other words, we proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ, even when it makes us unpopular, even when it costs us. We seek to explain and persuade gently, lovingly, persistently. We endure opposition and we make sacrifices to take the truth of Jesus Christ out to those who don't yet know him. We go to the occupied hill country of London with its terrifying tribes of intellectuals who mock and sneer at the Christian faith. And it's happy professionals whose self-sufficient lives just look like impregnable walls with, well, why would they ever want to know about Jesus? But we trust God's promise that he will build his church. We trust God's presence, his Holy Spirit with us. And so we go. And we seek to help the gospel spread too in far more threatening territory, far more serious hill country where there's real persecution and physical danger for Christians. The Middle East former Soviet states, China, North Korea. We go, we fight the fight of faith. And secondly, we follow God wholeheartedly now. And that last three-letter word is so important. See, Joshua 14 presents a challenge to me and to you tonight. God asks each one of us, is your life a steady push towards increasing comfort and self-indulgence? An ever-increasing standard of living and security and comfort? Or is your life a steady push towards joyful service and self-giving and self-sacrifice? Which way are you going? I was, uh, I was walking um, the dog a couple of Sunday mornings ago and I happened to stop at the, um, on the river just as the tide turned um, and you're probably thinking I'm incredibly boring, um, but at the risk of that, uh, it was actually quite interesting to watch. You saw this massive metal buoy just slowly shift as the entire Thames River started to flow the other way because the gravitational pull of the moon took it. And the truth is that the, the deepest loves and desires of your heart, your life will inexorably follow. Just as the water follows the weight, the drag of the moon. So whatever the biggest loves, whatever the deepest desires of your heart, your life will follow that trajectory. And how you live now, how you live now is building those loves, those desires, those motivations. What loves and passions you nurture today determine the direction your life will take in 40 years time if you live that long and the truth is wouldn't you love to be like Caleb when you retire wouldn't you love to be so adventurous and so free from the sort of grumbling and discontent that so often marks the older generation oh, we young people have got our sins too we middle aged and you young people we've got our sins too 
But wouldn't you love to be like Caleb when you get old? Following the Lord wholeheartedly. No fear. Such confidence in God's promise. Such joy and such adventure. I think of um, a minister just over in East London who we helped support, a very posh guy called Mike Reith. Very, very posh. And yet he served in a very, very ordinary parish in Dagenham for most of his, um, his life as a minister. Getting towards retirement, um, but still young enough to, to take on another job maybe for a few years. So now's the time for a little Cotswold village. Somewhere, somewhere enjoyable, somewhere gentle, somewhere beautiful, somewhere for nice walks. No. He sacked in his job at his church in Dagenham and in the teeth of real opposition from the bishop and the local Anglican clergy, he's planted a church from scratch on a local housing estate where there's no Christian work going on at all. There's Caleb for you. I've been reading um, this book, Dispatches from the Front, Tim Kesey. There's a whole load of um, copies around the corner if you, if you want to get inspired. If you don't, there's... Um, just next to it is some chocolate advent calendars, <laughs> which is kind of... Anyway, um, uh, it's a fantastic book. He basically has traveled around the, the globe looking at the countries where, um, where Christians face real persecution but are taking the gospel out. So former Soviet states, um, North Korea, um, Turkmenistan, the Middle East, all those sorts of places. And it's a fantastic read because it's full of people who are just up for it. There's a, a Chinese guy um, who's uh, in middle age, settled with his family, and then he finds out, he lives in the far northeast of China, that um, in, the, in many of the western towns there's just there's lots of uh, migrant workers moving in and very few Christians. So he and his family talk to their church and they just get up and they move and they travel for 70 hours on the wooden bench trains. So the lowest class, because they just didn't have the money, they just sat on a wooden bench for 70 odd hours, trundling across China to a town they'd never been to, just to start sharing the gospel with people they've never met. Ordinary workers, not professional Christian missionaries, not ministers. They just want to tell people about Jesus. But they've got Jesus' promise that he's going to build his church. They've got the presence of the Holy Spirit, so they just got up and went. Started a load of house churches. Uh, I love uh, Pastor Gennady that he writes about in, um, in the Soviet Union. He was imprisoned by a brutal local police chief under the communist regime and was, uh, was beaten and, and really badly treated by this local police chief. The local police chief is now in the post-communist world in, in charge of all the prisons in the, in, in the region. And Pastor Gennady wants to uh, start some churches in the prisons amongst the, uh, the prisoners. And so he just goes to this guy and the guy's like, really, you're going to go to him? He said, it's all right, I've been over his head. He said, oh, who did you talk to? I spoke to God, it'll be fine. So he goes and says, hey, I'd like to, to go and share the gospel. <laughs> Gets his permission. He went because he had God's promise that God's going to build his church. And he had God's presence. I would really urge you, um, get an advent calendar, they're good. But also get this, read it, pray through it and act. Take God at his word. See, we too easily settle for mediocrity. Not you, we. All of us. We want comfortable lives here and now. We want homes and career and relationships and we make them our priority. And we do so at the expense of God's great mission to save people for all eternity. And the truth is, London's a wonderful, busy place, but we get distracted and filled up with all the good things there are here to do. And as a result... Actually, our lives shrivel in significance. 
and they don't count. And you and I miss out on the wonderful, lasting, eternal things that God is up to. The excitement and adventure of serving him as Caleb did. The call of Caleb to be confident in God's promises. To be sure of God's presence. And so to live for his glory. You know, if you trust in Jesus, you'll end in his eternal rest. God will get you there. That's a given. But he gets us there by putting a spirit of faith in us. A spirit that fights wholeheartedly trusting in his promises, fighting against sin and living gloriously, adventurously, set free to live for God, secure that eternity is ours and nothing can rob us of that. And so we can live now in a way that matters and a way which will bring joy and a way which will bring delight to our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Caleb. We thank you that he wasn't perfect. We thank you instead that he had what we have. He had your promises and he had your presence. And so he went out and he lived a life that mattered. We pray, Father, that we would, uh, in our twilight years, be like Caleb. And so we pray that you would give us the courage and the desire to make the changes tonight that will set us on that trajectory, that we might live lives of significance, of value, of eternal worth. Amen.